Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Sean Quigley about his paper, An Evaluation of Multiple SAFMEDS Procedures. Sean earned his Ph.D. in Behavior Analysis at Western Michigan University. He currently serves as the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Melmark. Prior to joining the Melmark team, he completed a postdoctoral psychology fellowship at the University of New Mexico Medical Group. He stayed with the University of New Mexico Medical Group as a manager of behavioral services, working to increase behavior analytic providers, supporting advocacy groups, and developing state regulatory guidelines for service delivery. Sean has worked as a direct support professional, a behavior analyst, a trainer, and an administrator in community settings, home settings, residential settings, and school settings. These experiences provided a strong foundation for understanding service development, regulatory requirements, scope of competence issues, and resource allocation. Sean actively supports the profession through practice, research, teaching, and service. This interview about staff meds is incredibly interesting. I am excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, here's my interview with Sean Quigley. Hello, Sean, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hey, Cody, how are you? Nice to see you. Excited to have you on the show today and to talk about your paper. Before we jump into your specific research, we always love learning a little bit about our guests. So do you mind sharing with the audience a little bit about your background, your current role, and your interest in this type of research? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, for me, when people ask me my background, I, I think it's often first I, you know, I do a lot with my family, you know, my wife and four kids, and we try to be outside, but many of them are, all my kids are involved in sports. So I spend a lot of time at sporting events. Um, and so that's fun. You know, my background in terms of more professional stuff, I learned about behavior analysis long ago in Idaho, taking a, you know, introductory course and in my undergrad and was fortunate that my first job really emphasized behavior analysis and provided some additional training and I was lucky enough that Lloyd and Stephanie Peterson came to Idaho and were opening a program. And, you know, from that point, I kind of just followed them around and they've been my mentors ever since in uh, behavior analysis. So I, I think that's kind of how with this topic of SAF meds or, uh, you know, instruction that was in special education is where my behavior analysis was kind of um, taught. So I had an interest in just instruction in general um, and which led to evaluation of SAF meds. So Nice. And you followed Lloyd and Stephanie Peterson to Western Michigan University, where 
our paths crossed for the first time. And is that where uh, this research was conducted? Or is this where you started this research when you were at Western Michigan? Yeah, I had an interest there um, as we began to just look at, you know, instructional strategies in, in teaching courses. And um, so it was in it was utilized in some of the courses there and, and just led to lots of questions about implementation as I took different courses or taught different courses, noticing different uh, implementation practices across people, professionals and, and students and stuff. And so it led to a lot of questions and looking into the literature uh, regarding um, SAF meds. And, and then, you know, in my current role as well with Melmark, um, that's one of the things you know we've implemented here and also looking at that across our divisions, you know, state divisions and, and how do we utilize SAF meds for various purposes. So I think that actually segues really nicely into talking about your paper, your paper titled an evaluation of multiple SAF meds procedures. And at the heart of this paper is identifying the different sort of nuances of the implementation of SAF meds and sort of creating a comparison. So before we get into exactly the different procedures that can be involved with SAF meds, could you provide a, a general definition or introduction to the concept of SAF meds to the listeners who may not be familiar? Yeah, absolutely. So SAF meds is an acronym um, that says, or that stands for say all fast minute every day shuffled. So S-A-F-M-E-D-S. Um, and so the idea is that it's a strategy for learning material where you know a learner might hold the deck. So there's a deck of cards. Uh, you shuffle the cards up so they're not in a, the same order every time. And you typically have a set amount of time, in this case, minute, you know, one minute. And you look at the front of the card and say then the response that's you know prompted from that first side of the card. Um, so often you see them as definition terms. So the term is on the front and you say the definition or vice versa. You see the definition and say the term, which is written on the back. And then you would turn the card over, check your answer, see if there's immediate accuracy or not. And then you, you know, put them into piles, the cards into piles based on accurate or incorrect. And then you just keep doing that repeatedly for the one minute. You chart your performance over time and see how well your learning is doing. So SAF meds is kind of that process um, that Ogden Lindsley kind of developed in terms of a enhanced uh, uh, flashcards procedure that he developed early on. Yeah, I think it, you especially hit on an interesting point of conversation at the end there that this in some ways may remind people of a relatively traditional flashcard procedure, but in reality, it's much more sophisticated in the, in the sense that there are specific procedures that, that are involved that, that sort of enhance the way that flashcards would traditionally be used. Absolutely. And, and there's some great uh, resources out there uh, that talk a little bit more about that, like uh, Eshelman, John Eshelman um, had some websites, some information on his personal websites that really describe some great SAFMED things. There's a great resource by Graf and Amon, 2005, um, that, are, that go into details of SAFMED's procedures and broader precision teaching. I, I really encourage people to look at those and and um, that information, or even Lindsley, you know, uh, developed some of this and published on it as well. 
So this SAFMEDS paper, this specific paper, is published in the special issue within behavior analysis and practice focused on precision teaching and direct instruction. Could you talk about the connection of SAFMEDS to precision teaching and how those two are related? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to channel my inner Rick Cabina here, um, or John Elshaman. So, um, you know, SAFMEDS are part of precision teaching and that precision teaching is, and I won't get this right, so please don't kill me, those that are better trained in precision teaching. Uh, but, you know, you think about precision teaching as like frequent measurement of learning or a standard way of um, graphing and analyzing data to then guide instructional changes, make instructional changes. And so SAFMEDS is one of those ways where I think we can be very clear about the learning style or instruction method about seeing something and making a vocal response to it uh, or a learning channel, again, which there's lots of stuff written there on those and then measuring the performance of correct responses. And then that idea of measuring it across time. So one minute right then I'm measuring, but then I repeat that measurement across time uh, multiple times. So it's measurement of performance across time, across time, a second time. And so um, that's kind of that link to precision teaching and being able to really measure performance and learning and making adjustments um, with this procedure in particular. That's a really helpful sort of connection between SAF meds and precision teaching and thinking of SAF meds as ultimately an application of precision teaching. In your introduction, when you were kind of talking about a little bit of the history of SAF meds, you specified that there really is no gold standard of SAF med procedures, or at the very least that one is difficult to identify. Can you explain why there seems to be a disconnect in identifying like what is the the gold standard or the best SAF med procedure? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think some of us have that background of where, you know, we we specify very clearly protocols and then we measure and evaluate the outcome of those protocols um, and then tweak those and evaluate, well, what is the best kind of protocol that yields the best results, right? And um, and again, I, I'm not going to do justice to this. I, I really do think like John Eshman or, or like Kent Johnson or Rick Cabina are really good at things like this, but understanding instruction, you may, you know, you may individualize certain points of the instruction uh, based on where the learner is at. And so I think there's been a lot of SAF meds procedures used um, as starting points based on, you know, learner characteristics. And so, you know, maybe the timing is verified or like a one that I find often is the error correction. So if I engage in my SAF meds timing and I have errors, what do I then do to kind of help reduce those number of errors outside of that SAF meds instructional or that timing, you know? So I, I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff where that's contributed to the different SAF meds procedures and not one being a starting point, you know, and for us in this uh, research, we needed to have kind of a starting point to then evaluate, well, how does that one procedure compare to other procedures? And um, so that's where we started with the take the literal acronym SAF meds and make that the starting point, the simplest procedure um, across, you know, these evaluations of different procedures. Nice. That, that's helpful. 
And before we get into the sort of specific comparisons that you created within this study, I, I want to quickly hit on some of the existing research support for SAF meds when you were heading into the study. Could you speak about the, the research support that does exist for SAF meds? Is this something that's, that, that there's publications on already looking at the effectiveness of SAF meds and what type of skills are, are, are being targeted in those publications? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, a different publication um, with similar co-authors, you know, Stephanie Peterson, Jessica Frieder, and Kim, Kim Peck and I wrote a review of SAF meds where we um, kind of really looked at, you know, what is all that background? What is the um, literature based for SAF meds? And that's called um, a review of SAF meds, evidence for procedures, uh, outcomes, and directions for future research, I believe. I believe it was 2017. So so the background of that paper was really we were looking at what is the literature base with SAF meds? What procedures had been used? How have they been evaluated? You know, what are the outcomes for SAF meds? And so um, that's where we found there are definitely a lot of different SAF med procedures, and there's a lot of different uh, populations that it was being used for, kids, uh, you know, K through 12 type of stuff, college stuff. Uh, just everyday lives kind of, you know, there's a great article about tracking thoughts and um, things like that. And then also the outcome measures. And so not just accuracy, but there's a, an acronym that's REAPS, R-E-A-P-S, which stands for retention and application, uh, endurance and stability, um, and the other one escaping me. So I apologize uh, for the great people who came up with that acronym. Um, but anyway, so those have been out evaluated, but roughly, I think we only found just less than 30 articles, you know, over the course of, you know, we're now we're going on um, close to 25 years um, since REAPS or not REAPS, uh, SAF meds was kind of presented by Ogden Lindsley. I think the publication was in 96, but some of this really started back in the seventies. And so, you know, 30 years and now 40 years later, you know, we're, we're, that's to me, you know, less than 30 articles, isn't a lot in terms of evaluating, especially given the number of different, uh, procedures, different dependent variables from our perspective, it, it kind of made it hard to really evaluate. Well, if I'm a new teacher, like an instructor or doing training or something, how do I um, try to evaluate which one I should use, which procedure, what should I measure? How, how do I know what to do? Uh, and I think that's kind of the background of where we are getting into uh, with this study. Awesome. That's really helpful context. Now, for this particular study, then what was the purpose or what were you hoping to accomplish within the study? What were you looking at? Yeah, I think our, I think our first one was just kind of to set, you know, what was the effect of the basic SAFMED procedure? If you took that acronym at, at its base kind of process and um, evaluated it, you know, how does that work? What does it look like? And that's also controlling for any other instruction, you know, just strictly the base procedure, SAF meds, what's the outcomes. Um, and I think from there, it was really kind of saying, well, there are known variations of the SAF meds procedure. So if we use those and control for all other 
you know, instruction, what's the outcome of those basic procedures? And um, that I think that was it. Like we just simply wanted to know if you control and define the SAFMED procedure and hold it constant, you know, what does it look like? And then if you use these other variations and hold everything else constant, um, you know, what's the outcome? How did you go about trying to evaluate these things? Like what participants did you use? What setting was the study conducted in? That kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, you know, this was uh, this uh, particular article and that review article that I mentioned were both part of my, um, were my dissertation. Um, so this, this was partly completed through those uh, PhD requirements. So participants were uh, students at a university um, that were enrolled in, you know, various courses. And we focused on language and uh, some languages that we thought hopefully could be less prevalent or that might be easier to to control. And so it was Chinese and, and uh, Russian, Mandarin Chinese to be specific. And so we basically just kind of recruited participants that had zero kind of history, like any formal classes in the, either of those languages and had not lived in a location where that was the primary spoken language for any amount of time and didn't have anyone, you know, speaking the language at home type of thing. So basically no exposure to the language and, um, and, and recruited them. And, and our goal was to kind of just use these different SAFMIS procedures to see would their ability to see a Russian word or a Chinese character uh, could they accurately then say the English transition, you know, and so accurate number of responses per one minute timing, and then look at that across one minute timings uh, was our goal to see, did it increase? Did they become more accurate and have less errors? Or we also tracked what are, you know, are passes or skips where they didn't know the answer and just said pass. Were the Russian and, and Chinese terms, were those thematic in any way, or were those sort of just sort of random? terms that you pulled out of those languages? Yeah, thematic in the sense that there were, there were some numbers, you know, uh, there were some animals, like cat and chicken, I think. Uh, there was a few like different kinds of cars, I think, like one was like a truck, uh, and maybe then one was car. Um, so nothing like specific, just kind of more uh, general basic words from the language, house, things like that. And what was the basic procedure that the participants experienced? So you had a, you know, a volunteer research participant come in. What did, what did their experience look like throughout the, the study? Mm -hmm. um, firstly, uh, before I forget your other question about the thematic, I do want to make sure to mention that they were matched across language. So whatever we had in Chinese the exact same words were present in Russian, just to point that out uh, for consistency to make sure in terms of learning effect or, or difficulty. So the general procedure, once someone, you know, agreed to uh, or consented to the research, we first kind of went through a basic training uh, procedure where we wanted to make sure they understood how the basic SAFMED procedure worked. And so we would have, we had a different set of SAFMED cards that had different pictures with a word on it. So they would see a picture and have to say a word. 
And so we use that to just to teach them how the SAFMEDS procedure worked, the one minute timing, all those things. And once they achieved, uh, you know, some preset criterion of number of correct responses per timing, we then moved them into the um, actual research trials. And so depending on which grouping they were in, um, everyone started where they did the basic procedure for both decks. So they came in, they would do a one minute timing with the Chinese deck and the basic one that's outlined, you know, in the acronym. And then they would follow that up with a, with a one minute timing of then the Russian deck. So they did one of each. That was it. That's all they did that day. No other instruction, no access to the materials. We held on to all the cards and everything, um, which again, we were hoping would limit their, their ability to practice uncontrolled outside of our um, sessions. So we would try to get four to six sessions in per week, you know, student needs are gone, you know, not at school every single day working, those kind of things. We would repeat that, those baseline sessions, just the one, one minute timings with each deck for approximately two weeks. We'd love to do it based off of like performance. Um, but the reality of the situation was we only had them for a limited amount of time. So two weeks was kind of the length for that baseline. And then what we did was we would take one of the decks, it was randomly decided. So let's say for person one, the Chinese deck would stay with that baseline procedure. They would just continue to do one, one minute timing every time we saw them. And the second deck, we would then transition to a supplementary uh, SAFMEDS procedure. And then they would do that procedure in addition to a one minute timing. And then we would, you know, again, just keep graphing their data um, and see how that supplementary procedure changed performance over time. Um, and that's kind of, and, you know, and we just repeated and had more participants and we tried to group them where, you know, um, we did the number one supplementary procedure as a group of people added another group, you know, supplementary procedure number two. So everyone kind of had their own group um, that they were a part of. I'll get into asking you about the specific supplemental procedures, but before I do, what was the utility in keeping one of the decks in baseline as you transitioned the other deck into the supplemental procedures? Mm -hmm. I think for us, it was really looking at um, as a control variable, if both decks uh, it's one deck changed, we would expect that performance on the, on the first deck to remain in line with whatever the trend was. Um, and if you, if you read the article, you'll kind of see that, you know, the base, the base decks, uh, that basic SAFMED procedure learning, the learning acceleration was very low. You know, they were not picking up, uh, responses very quickly, lots of passes, many errors, and depending on the supplementary procedure, you'll, you actually see a change in the acceleration where uh, correct answers starts to accelerate and incorrects decelerates, passes decelerate. So, and in some cases you see more passes because uh, they're getting through the cards quicker actually. Um, so that was kind of that to really see, you know, that those things held steady despite the one change in the procedure, the supplementary procedure. So what were some of the, or what were the four variations of staff meds that you used to supplement the baseline condition? Yeah, so we had the, I, I guess the way to think about it is 
there was two variations to start with. So you had the basic procedure and then we had the first variation is what we called the whole deck. And then the second one is just sprints. And so the pre the premise be between those is that the whole deck was you were allowed to practice or have access to the deck for up to 10 minutes before your one minute timing. And the instructions given to the participant were basically, you can do whatever you want for 10 minutes with this deck, study it however you want. And then at the end of the 10 minutes, or whenever you say you're ready, we can do the um, one minute timing. Uh, but again, they couldn't pass 10 minutes. That was the maximum. The sprints were, the idea was they would do three practice one minute timings and then we would do a fourth timing, which was the, you know, the timing that would then be recorded. So it was giving them three practice opportunities to run through the deck and then do the fourth um, test timing. Now the whole deck and the sprints were then further um, changed where we had what's called incremental whole deck or incremental sprints. And really what that was is there was 60 cards in the deck and we, we divided the deck into four decks, 15 cards each, um, but it was actually still 60 cards. We just, um, each card was in the deck four times. So there was only 15 different cards, but for a total of 60 cards, because it was in there four times. And so they were either practicing that whole deck procedure with only 15 of the cards, or they were doing sprints with just 15 cards. Um, so that's the whole deck and then incremental whole deck sprints and incremental sprints. And that's how those were set up. And how was exposure to these variations sort of divvied up or assigned to clients? Like what did the, was this split up across individual participants or, or what did that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just started uh, kind of just randomly said, okay, well, we're going to try, you know, the sprints variation first. So the first uh, three to six participants we get, they're all going to be assigned just to the, the sprints variation. And, you know, then it was random again, which deck each participant was assigned, you know, so participant one sprints might've been assigned to the Chinese deck, where then the next person it was assigned to the Russian deck. And, and we were just looking for an equal number um, or, you know, close there to, you know, so two and one, if there was three participants in the group and, and then for, you know, ease of just running the procedure, once we had those, that group going and the necessary participants, we then the next group of participants were assigned the incremental sprints. Um, so it, it could have been done more randomly across all of the, you know, uh, incremental procedures, but I think we wanted to keep groups together and run them so that their timelines and different things were closer together to have a continuous multiple baseline. Um, you know, and that didn't always work out, you know, some attrition or things like that. We had to, I think there were a couple of groups where we had groups of three running, someone uh, dropped out of that group. So then what we did later is just run another group um, with that same procedure again, to just uh, have more participants. So did each of the variations receive its own essentially concurrent multiple baseline design? So it's like one concurrent multiple baseline for whole deck, incremental whole deck sprints, incremental sprints. Correct. Is, is 
close as they could. Not all participants started exactly the same time to have a true concurrent multiple baseline, um, but it was uh, they were all pretty close in terms of their starting points within each group. And it looks like you were also able to collect some follow-up data. Could you speak about that? Yeah, so if you remember that acronym, REAPS, kind of that retention of information. So some of the ideas here is that if you can reach a certain performance level, and this gets into the definition of what is fluency, um, then you should be able to retain that information longer. And so the thought here was, in addition to kind of accuracy or acquisition of information, you know, we could do a quick check of retention. And so we tried to have participants come back in uh, to, at some point later on and just so no practice, no access to the decks at all. And what would happen if we then just went ahead and uh, gave them the deck? How was their performance? And what did that look like? And um, so, yeah, so each, I, I think with most, if I remember right, there was one, maybe two participants who, you know, we lost track of, we, we couldn't find them um, after that follow-up period. And I, and I believe the period was just a week. Um, it wasn't long, um, but it was just kind of a quick follow-up. Nice. Uh, so what did the results look like for this study? So um, across the different supplemental procedures, what did we see in terms of effectiveness? Yeah. Um, well, I'll leave a teaser. I hope you guys will go read the article and look at the, the uh, standard acceleration charts for yourself and, uh, and look at those. Um, and, and I do have to give a, a shout out to a co-author for, for those standard acceleration charts. Again, those were not my strong suit, um, but Kim Peck was phenomenal and, and uh, running those and developing as well as Jessica Frieder. So, so thank you to those guys in that portion of this manuscript. But if you, so generally speaking, if you look at just the basic SAFMEDS uh, procedure, regardless of which language, there was little uh, progression in terms of accurate responding. Um, it was generally, you know, increasing a couple of improvements, you know, from one correct response to five, maybe to 10 for the high performers across, you know, several weeks um, and errors or passes remained high, you know, above 20 per minute. Generally speaking, again, looking at the graphs, you'll see some individual differences. Um, if we look at the whole deck procedure, you generally see there's that baseline again, which is just the basic procedure. You generally see a quick change in acceleration, so total number of correct answers and numbers correct per timing, and a quick deceleration of incorrect um, responses. And if I remember my PT language correctly, that's the crossover or the, the jaws or something to that effect. And again, I apologize to you PTers who are more fluent with that. Um, but you would see that crossover, uh, which indicates a you know a great learning uh, presentation, more correct, less incorrect. Uh, so that was generally for the uh, whole deck. We saw that repeatedly, which suggested maybe a, a better choice over just the basic one. With the incremental whole deck, um, you saw a similar kind of change where correct answers. Um, the level, you know, compared to baseline jumped quite a bit and the incorrect answer level as well did, 
dipped quite a bit. And then those celebrations for both of them continued very high. So to me demonstrated that, you know, doing smaller chunks and practicing them ahead of time and doing the, the timings actually, you know, had better, quicker results um, in terms of accurate responding. So that's whole deck versus incremental whole deck. The sprints, um, you know, weren't quite as robust, but you definitely see with the sprints that there are, are more correct, the correct responses start to increase, incorrect responses um, start coming down. And similar to what you saw with the incremental whole deck, incremental sprints, you start to see the same thing. Given smaller chunks uh, and more practice, you see that they, they're the number of accurate responses jumps and the acceleration of accurate responses across time also is, is steeper. Um, so in general, the uh, incremental procedures seem to, to give more uh, bang for the buck, uh, but definitely the incremental whole deck seemed to be the best performer out of all of them. So if I had some students who were working on vocabulary terms for my concepts and principles course, you would recommend incremental whole deck method for them? Uh, yeah, and, and that might be one of those areas where it naturally progresses with a course where, you know, you're only week one, you're only reading, you know, chapters one, two, maybe some supplemental material from another book or something. So you introduce those terms and they practice those things relevant to that material. And then week two, they add in some additional cards. Week three, they add in some additional cards. So what you're doing is slowly expanding the deck. Um, and you can also, you know, then perhaps put that deck for maybe the first three weeks to the side and then do material for weeks four, five, and six uh, by itself and then recombine those materials, you know, from those uh, weeks. And so what it's allowing is more practice with those uh, smaller units of instruction. And so, yeah, it seems like it could make sense of doing that with your uh, class in line or just give them the whole thing. And, you know, they just divide it in some way and practice over time, but smaller chunks, more practice seems to, to be a good uh, outcome from this study. For practitioners or behavior analysts who may be working in a variety of settings, who would this be, or, or how do I want to word this? For the behavior analysts listening to this and, and, and thinking about how they can apply this, this information, what are some straightforward or sort of immediate applications of these findings that jumps to your head right away? Hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it was the, uh, the, the learning opportunity. So the Supplemental SAFMETS procedures really gave more access to material and the opportunity to practice that material. And, you know, I don't think anyone is using a SAFMETS procedure as the sole method to like teach material and then also assess, uh, you know, acquisition of that material. And so I, I think the kind of implication stuff is looking at how often they're accessing the material. And the supplemental SAFMED procedures give them more opportunity to access the material in a fluency-based paradigm that, you know, we can look at those benefits of that in terms of REAPs or other things. Um, so for me, that's the, that's the biggest thing. How do you provide more access to 
the material and the SAFMED supplemental procedures can be that. And from a practical pers perspective, many of us work in organizations where training is required by the state or your funder or whoever, but yet they don't necessarily pay you for it. Um, so giving people practical ways to access the material and like the supplemental SAF meds material might help uh, improve training outcomes in less time with less resources. Um, it allows them to kind of have access to these things on their own time or even, you know, quick opportunities we think about like at work having quick breaks to have a professional development activity. So like running a SAF meds study session, you know, you could have a study session in 15 minutes, you know, as an opportunity for training and knowledge acquisition, and then get someone back to working, you know, in a short period of time. Um, so, you know, things like that, I think are useful, similar when there's a procedure that has to be learned and kind of memorized. Like we use this for uh, our set expectations for like how to, how to secure a van in a wheelchair or a, a wheelchair in a van rather like there are certain steps. And so we have them try to memorize them in, in a SAF meds kind of format or fluency format, um, different things like that, I, I think are where we try to utilize this uh, procedure. That's helpful context to have. And, and I think interesting results are sort of information to, to pull from this study. Uh, I think, in, in, in my realm of, of graduate education, it seems that SAFMEDS is a relatively popular study procedure that, that students use. I certainly talk about it in, in my classes as, as an option. And so knowing that, you know, there are potentially better ways to use SAFMEDS other than the sort of basic procedure and, and, and getting information related to that is, is helpful. Now, no study is without complications or limitations. So what were some of the uh, limitations or, or complications you experienced in this study? Yeah, great question. I, I think some of it is one is just, you know, we were working with college students. <laughs> so sometimes there was a tendency for a college student not maybe to make it, um, for a next session. Um, but, you know, we've built that flexibility and again, of trying to only get four sessions per day, we would have loved to have it be a true SAF meds. Again, remember that acronym where it's say all fast minute every day, you know, and, and we didn't get the everyday portion in there. Um, so there could have been some changes there in terms of that. Um, you know, I already mentioned about the access to the material. Like this is, this evaluation was being used as the sole instructional material and assessment material at the same time. So having people access the material in different ways and using SAF meds as a barometer or a frequent measurement of those things uh, might also change the results of the study where the basic SAF meds procedure might be sufficient if they're contacting the, con uh, the, the necessary information a different way. Um, you know, I don't want to assume that their performance on any of the supplemental procedures would have been even better if they were contacting literature, because we just don't know that, um, or rather contacting the material uh, outside of the study. So th those are a few things. Um, I do know, you know, when we, some of the thoughts we have and some things, the conceptualization about SAF meds and, and how we went about it and how that fits in a 
tighter definition of precision teaching, I, I do recognize that doesn't fit with um, other folks' worldview of precision teaching and, and how those things work, or even the need, for example, to have a basic procedure that, that we should look at, you know, various instructional strategies and let the student tell us, you know, what's working based on their, their data. So I think that idea of a, of a starting point, what is the basic or gold standard staff men's procedure, you know, some would argue that that maybe isn't what's needed. You, all these other procedures are needed. So, you know, those are, I think, some of the general uh, thoughts of, of this. And then, you know, it's kind of hard to make a comparison. We didn't directly compare basic against the supplemental. I know I kind of described it in that way, um, but we didn't do a true comparison between those things. So that would be something someone down the road should look at and comparing them directly. Are there other future research ideas or directions that you think people should pursue related to this topic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, in that, that other article I mentioned, the, the review of SAF meds, um, I think there was a lot kind of pointed out there in terms of that opportunity to evaluate a lot of kind of different perspectives. I mean, this kind of a procedure could be repeated, but really analyzing all aspects of REAPs, you know, so like, do you achieve those um, outcomes? An area that's kind of um, out there as well is this idea of what is fluency and, and, you know, that definition of, you know, how do you achieve that? Like, we never technically reached fluency where their performance reached a criterion or topped out where their performance was at its peak and then maintained it over time. And then, you know, where we actually saw REAPs, where some argue that that's when you've actually reached fluency is when you see the outcomes. So any of those kind of studies where we further just kind of evaluate, you know, is there a difference? Like, do you actually see, you know, a, a higher attainment of REAPs, for example, with the uh, deck procedure versus the basic, um, you know, what does that look like? You, you may get better acquisition with one, but in the long run, one leads to better retention. And so I think those are interesting things. And anything we did here, you know, I think there are several, you know, extensions, you know, who is the population? What is the content that you're learning? Um, and like I said, the challenges of those areas of, uh, of REAPs. Um, I think one of the coolest articles I read, at least in all the SAFMED literatures, I really liked um, Kim Carr and Templeton, I think it was 2001, where they, they had this really cool setup where they were teaching a language. I don't remember the language. I apologize, guys. Uh, but then, and they ran SAFMED's trials and then in, um, challenged the retention of that and interfering information where they then played music and basically tried to interrupt performance uh, across these like 20 minute trials. Uh, that one was a cool one. I thought Kim Carr and Templeton was a really cool evaluation and creative ways to, you know, kind of look at reaps. So similar things could be done, I think, with these other procedures as well. Yeah, Sean, you, you did this study for your dissertation for, for graduate students who are listening. You just provided a lot of really interesting future research recommendations. Would you recommend this topic for, for dissertation work? Yeah, I, I think it's something that, you know, dissertation-wise or, or a line of research, uh, you know, in its own right in terms of, 
evaluating staff meds. I, I know there's a few folks, you know, in the field who have been looking at it way more than I have. Uh, you know, John Eshelman is great, and we were fortunate to participate in a uh, symposium with him and his students a number of years ago, closer to when this was conducted. And and John's been doing a lot, and some of his colleagues. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be done. And, and I think really what we're talking about here is is instructional strategies. How do we look at learning for individuals and how do we, you know, use the ideas of precision teaching and, and improve learning, um, which, you know, there's no shortage of needed uh, answers from questions there um, in terms of looking at our instructional practices, whether, you know, a K through 12 or a university setting or a practice setting, you know, I mean, and the reality of the day is, we hire people, you know, in, in my area of practice right now to, to support individuals of varying needs. And the outcome is what we need. I, I need an individual to be proficient and, and fluent in their job and, and meet the needs of an individual. And, uh, you know, so how do I train them quickly, but uh, also help them achieve a training performance that meets the minimum performance criteria uh, to be successful at their job. So there's a lot that can be done in this area. It's a fascinating topic. And, and this is a really cool paper. And I do uh, want to echo Sean's earlier point that uh, these data are beautifully depicted in, in standard acceleration charts within the paper. So I recommend downloading the paper to check out those graphs. Uh, Sean, this is, uh, you were able to provide a lot of helpful sort of recommendation and resources throughout this interview. You referenced John Eshman's work. Are there other recommendations or, or resources or, or things that people should read who are maybe new to the topic and want to learn more? Mm hmm um, Yeah, I think if I were to think about two kind of resource. If you just want to kind of get involved or understand staff meds, I, I would say three resources. I, I think John Eshman's website, I, John, I hope you still have it up and going or someone has taken that over for you. But I, you know, that website provides a good conceptual just kind of presentation of what is staff meds. Um, I, I do think I'm kind of partial to this one, but I think the review article that myself and others wrote, you know, Stephanie and Jessica and um, Kim, I, uh, I really think gives a kind of a good background. It's like, what is the literature specific to fast SAF meds? And, and I know it's not a complete picture because we also, we excluded, um, you know, more traditional methods of sharing information in the precision teaching world about chart sharing and some of those things, um, but gives you a very good idea of kind of like what's been done out there, what, what research exists to SAF meds. And then the last resource that I really like is the Graf and Amon 2005 publication. That again, I, I hope people are able to access that. It's a private published, uh, uh, it's not a book, it's a, it's a binder that they put together for you that really gives you the um, practical procedures of SAF meds and some different things and, and some broader persistent teaching things. So those would be my three recommendations. If you wanna look at SAF meds, the review article, John Eshman's website, and the, and and again, I think all of these are on cited in the paper, and then the Graf and Amon uh, 2005 resource are all great. Awesome, thank you for sharing those. We'll be sure to link to as many of those as we can find uh, within the show notes, so the listeners should have easy access to them. 
Sean, thanks for your time today to talk about this research. It was really interesting to hear about. Yeah, thanks for the time. And everyone that's listening, do your part. Go register for Behavior Analysis and Practice. It's a great journal. There's some great uh, special sections or special issues or just the material in general is, is great. I've, that's a journal I appreciate a lot in my you know, personal and professional life. So yeah. thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. And to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. And to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Parent. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. Thank you.